This week I was watching um, BBC and there was a conversation going on and one of the men remarked that in today's world, 72 hours, so you do the math and you see how many days that is, that's how long stories last before they're taken over by some other story that grabs the oxygen in the air in the room, that grabs our imagination. That we know things are going to happen in the news and in people's lives, and then they'll quickly be forgotten. Because there's so much to choose from. I think that is why this generation of people have become fascinated by stories that are called prequels. You know, the story behind the story. Now, on Sky, they are going to begin... Filming next spring, one of them, the storylines for a television series for the prequel for Lord of the Rings. You remember when that came out. Now, the thing about Lord of the Rings is that all the prequel material is there, and a lot of the fans and those of us have read some of it, it's there to be mined and to be put together. And it's always interesting once you know something from reading it to see, is that really the story that was being told? And of course then there is Game of Thrones. That prequel. The thing about that prequel is that it's being written by George Martin. He's trying to figure out how far back do I push the story to begin it and then how many seasons can we put together to run it up to the story people already know. Now, prequels aren't new. I remember in college when I took a Shakespeare class and... I, you, I've told this story before that I did my history on his historical resources and I watched something on BBC that was just like, wow, that's so much more than I understood. But Shakespeare, when he wrote Henry VI to begin to support the Tudor dynasty, he wrote the plays of what we think of today as he wrote two, then he wrote three, then he came around and he wrote the prequel, what we think of as one to tell the story. And see, I look at this passage that we're looking at here in Hebrews chapter 1 as God's grand story, and what is central to the story is that God spoke. This is, you remember, I've introduced you to the idea of a one-sentence story, and when I look at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Do you see how many things are tied up in that sentence? That story? 
We're going to get back and look at that. But yet there's also a second story. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Now it's a shift, it's a different kind, focusing on one person and on their activities. And what I want to say in in continuing my introduction is that you've heard me say about the book of Hebrews that it introduces us to the idea that he is the substance of the shadow, that the the temple that was there in his day was a shadow of what was in heaven because that's where Jesus had his ministry and we're going to discover that in the book of Hebrews. Now what you're going to see again and again is this is a letter that is written to people saying don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the law in the terms of the diets. Don't go back to the priesthood and the sacrifices because Christ has done it once and for all. That we have gained access to the very presence of God through the flesh of Christ, as we read in our assurance of pardon. You see, the thing was that Jewish converts in becoming Christians, and here's where politics and power and law come in. See, Jews were tolerated. They had a legal status. When you left being a Jew and started identifying with a Christian, you lost that legal protection. So there were some people that maybe would say, okay, I'm not quite ready to you know, go public with this to be that. You see, I think that as we look at this passage, we see that listening to God can be complicated because of our fallen, noisy world wants to drown him out. Now, again, from my own background, I I thought about this as I was listening to this. For 50 years, I've been having this idea that Francis Schaeffer gave to us in 1968 that God is there and he has spoken. In this passage, that's the simple background story of what's going on. Now, when we look at the world that we live in, yes, it wants to drown us out, but it's doing it in a way that is very different than we're used to. All of us have seen, I have to be careful in saying all of us, but a lot of us have seen on television, when you have people have recordings of something and they want to hear something, so the guy gets behind the sound booth and he, he gets rid of this, he gets rid of that, so that they can hear clearly what's there. See, in the sound booth of, of secular culture, what they want to do is they want to move the button so Godward, so that the idea of God and God's speaking is just not there. That people can't hear it. The absence of God and his word in the public square is what many people want. Now, something else that I want to say is that, and again, my readings and looking at things, is that we have to be very careful that in our homes, we don't have a family silence about God, that there is an absence of God and his word in family life and conversations. 
I know from raising three daughters, and I am very blessed. My 42-year-old daughter puts something up and it's like, yes. But young people go through those stages when they, they don't want to hang around at the table for family devotions or they're just preoccupied. And, and I can't imagine, you know, today how preoccupied they are and, you know, making sure your kid, your children, your, yourself, you don't have the phones at the table, you know, all the things that you can do to have a conversation. And of course, conversations need to start very young so that they're used to talking to their parents. When I was a pastor in Arizona, we used a program where we would start parents at the age of two of having appropriate conversations about sexual behavior because we knew there were predators. We knew that two-year-olds were targets. And so we had to get them ready. How much more do we know that our children are targets of the devil, of the world? That we need to have those conversations. Because see, if you start talking about this at two, when they're 12, it's going to be, it's just part of family life. It's not something new. But if it is something new, you need to jump into the deep end and do that spiritually. And I know that it's a delicate balance of between being clear and, and coming across not as judgmental, but wanting to share with them God's steadfast love and how it affects every area of life. And so in our families, we cannot be silent because God has spoken. Now there's two areas that this passage looks at. It looks at our faith that rests on his word and our faith that rests on the Son. Because a faith that rests on God's word will enable you to stand secure when the storms of life come. Let me read those first two verses, that sentence, once again. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, that, that simple statement, God spoke, is at the foundation of Christianity, of God's, our relationship with God, to realize that when he speaks, we know he's there. And when we speak, he speaks, we should know that he's holy, he's the creator, all of that. And he has spoken in different ways. He spoke through the prophets. Remember how when he spoke, and I can't imagine what this was like to Israel, and they heard his voice, and they were terrified. They wanted an intermediary. They didn't want God to speak directly to them. See, when, when people are dissatisfied with the Bible and say, I want God to speak directly to me, uh-uh. Listen to the people who heard the voice of God and they say it is so terrifying because it is so holy and you realize you are in the presence of God. You want a prophet. You want someone who will speak God's word to you. That's why he gave us a written word. God spoke. Now, I realize that that phrase, that idea, 
is counter to almost everything our culture and our world that we live in today wants to believe. See, they want to say that religious ideas are something that people make up, and what we want to say is, no, God did it. And when we say that God spoke, what we need to be willing to say is, I need to listen. I don't need to manipulate it. I need to hear it. I need to ask His Spirit to help me understand it. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That is something that the writer of Hebrews is going to open up and explain. But see, what we have here is what we think of as a continuity of the story that that God spoke, the son spoke. And then we get back into this covenant theology that I keep banging away at. Appointed the heir of all things, that idea of being an heir comes from that grand story of the covenant. That God made a commitment, God made a commitment to the future. You see, when we read about an heir, we need to realize that, yes, God is interested in the future. He's interested in your future. And then as if he wants to really grab our attention, and so we go, wow, how does he end it? Through whom also he created the world. Now, you go back to John chapter 1, you have that, you go back to... Genesis, where he speaks it into it, and he's saying the sun was there. The sun is not part of creation. He created the world. Now, we're going to get to a point in chapter 4 when the writer of Hebrews will say, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Are you ready to have the thoughts and intentions of your heart exposed by the Word of God? See, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people find it hard to read, because God uses the Word of God to convict and to show them what's in their heart. And sometimes what's in our heart, we know isn't what God wants to see, but that's what He sees. Now, in terms of the Word of God, and and I'm going to be very careful here because I don't want to preach next week's sermon. (laughs) But you see, what we're going to see next week, it's as if the writer of Hebrews makes these statements, tells us these two stories, And then he says, wait a minute. And he goes back and he is going to reach back into the book of Psalms five, seven times to back up what he's just said. See, I find it interesting that he doesn't reach back into the prophets. He doesn't reach back into the law. He reached back into the poetry, the the Psalms that were at the heart of the community of Israel. They would sing them together when they walked, when they worked, when they worshipped. He would reach back into the poetry and see, Christ is here, Christ is there, Jesus is here, Jesus is there. See all of that. And I will tell you that I'll try not to make it a seven-point sermon, but we'll see. (laughs) 
And so a faith that rests on God's word will enable you to stand secure in the storms of life. See, if you're resting on the creator who has spoken, what can the world throw at you? What can the world throw at you? Now, the next part. A faith that rests on the sun will enable you to stand secure when the storms of life come. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, the beginning of this sentence, after making purification for sins, is something that the writer of Hebrews will open up again and again, and he will bring Old Testament scripture again and again to bear fruit on that and to give light to it. But just hear those words after making purification for sins. He accomplished it, it's done. See, that's one of the things that the book of Hebrews will remind us, that it's once and for all, he's finished it. My sins, my purification has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. He's completed it. You see, we don't need to add anything to it. I don't have to become pure to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't have to become pure to come and worship Him because Christ has done that for me. I don't care what kind of sin is in your past or you have committed. Do you you hear the compassion of the choice of words, that we have been purified? See, we live in a world that wants to shame us, that wants to make us feel guilty. And the writer of Hebrews comes back and describing what Jesus did, which he will explain more and more, and saying, after making purification for sins. As if that's not enough. Look at what it says. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. See, he can be our intercessor. He can be the one who represents us, but he can do it seated as an equal next to the Father. The one who brings you to the Father is seated because he's already done it in terms of purification. You see how he's emphasizing in very simple ways the completed work of Christ? Now, we don't have as much problem with the doctrine of angels as they did back then because angels were a big thing in the stories, because angels really do exist, but yet they became, sometimes, pieces of the stories can become more important than the story. There was a show in America called Touched by an Angel. 
you know in, because I, I know this has been a BBC TV, but um, think about what children are taught every Christmas about angels in that story. Every time the bell rings, an angel gets its wings. See, that's not who angels are. See, we want to create these images because we want to create the story, not hear the story. As the name he has, and do you see the power in this word? That he has inherited? He didn't earn it. He inherited it. That's one of the wonderful things about describing the relationship between the Father and the Son is that oftentimes he will use words so that we can know that we can be included. Now, the bridge between the stories of word and redemption is the name of the Son who, what he inherited. Listen to verse 3 again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint on his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, what we have to realize, and I was talking to my editor and English teacher, Celeste, and, and she said, this is not a good translation. Because you, can, you have all these he's, and you've got to figure out which he in the sentence is the father, is it the son? Now, once you read it and you think about it, you say, okay, this makes sense. Because here you have a beautiful description of what we have come to call the incarnation, God and man together in Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you see Christ is portrayed as someone who is created, someone who upholds. Do you see how God then intervenes and he's part of everything in the world that he's not left out? You see, one of the things that's going to happen in the book of Hebrews is that the writer is going to give us some very complicated in the fact that he brings a lot of information, a lot of scripture to bear on an idea. He wants us to think about what he is saying. He wants us to work to know who Jesus Christ is because he knows the storms of persecution are coming. See, so often Christ's Christianity is not silenced. People just recreate it in a simple way that doesn't include all that God has given to us. I think... One of the things I want after this worship service and everything, one of the reasons why we have the assurance of pardon every week is to know that our sins are forgiven and we have this wonderful idea after making purification for sins that it's finished once and for all. That you can know that your sins are forgiven. 
And I know that that's hard. Because sometimes I turn God into me. Why would, why would God forgive that? Great Britain and the United States are dealing with two parallel situations. Young women who left their country and went and joined ISIS and had children who want to come home. Now, I have no idea how the different it will play out. But the question could be, can you forgive them? I'll tell you one story about my father, then I'll ask to tell you something about me. When my mother started dating my father, she was very aware of his life story that at the age of seven, his father was murdered in a bank robbery. And in high school, he says, I'm going to kill that man. <clears throat> my mother loved him. He went off to World War II. But he would tell you that he was in his 40s before he could finally, because of the cross, let go of that anger, let go of that hatred, and forgive him so he could move forward. Now, I don't know what's happened in your lives in terms of things that hang on to you or you hang on to that need to be forgiven, need to be put in the past, need to be put under the blood of Christ. So I'm... I'm going to ask myself a question. Why does Fred need purification? There are two things that I continue to struggle with, but because I struggle with them, I know when they're happening and I know how to deal with them, but sometimes I don't necessarily deal with them as well as I should when I should. See, my two fears that I figured out in my mid-30s were that I have a failure, I was in the military, I have a fear of failure and a fear of rejection. And you say, well, that's kind of an odd thing for a pastor to have, but I do. And what it means is I have to be very careful not to make it personal. And that's a hard balance. I can look around and I can see things in our church and in our community. And those fears can just kind of seep in under the door. See, I know when there are not very many people here or when something else doesn't go right, that it's not about me. See, that's part of what's, see, that's at the heart of the fear of failure, the fear of rejection. So I want to make, I want to be the center of the story. I'm not the center of the story. Christ is the center of the story. You see, I recognize that it is a lack of faith, it is a distrust in the word of God that I have to confess and repent of because it's not about me. In our time in Hebrews, again and again, I will point you to Christ. 
I will point you to Christ because he is the only one that can deal with the storms that you face, a lot of which are private in our hearts and heads that we don't even talk to people about. Because we believe as a Christian, oh, I shouldn't do that. And and the reality is, yeah, I shouldn't do that, but I do it and I need to deal with it. I need to accept what is said here that I am purified. Sins of my youth. Purified. See, I I don't need to let the the darkness hang on to me. I don't need to compare myself to somebody else. I don't need to compare our church to another church. That Christ's purification is something I need every day. I need to know that I am washed in his blood, that I am cleansed of my sin. That in the eyes of God, he sees me as purified because of Jesus Christ, not because of my own efforts. And that is something, no matter what your age is, junior, primary school, secondary school, high school, university, People in their 60s, 70s, 80s. We all need purification. And that's why each week we are reminded as we confess our sins and then as we both hear an assurance and sing an assurance that our sins really are forgiven. It's what Christianity is all about. And we'll discover that in the book of Hebrews. Let us pray. (laughs) Father, we pray that the word of God would come into our hearts, that the word of God would touch us. We pray that we would hear it over the noise of the world that we live in that we would take the time to read it word by word, that we wouldn't just scan it, we wouldn't just skim it, but we would really read the word of God. And your spirit would take that and make it real so that we know that it is true that God spoke and that he has spoken by his son who created the world. That all of that would shape the way we look at it so that our fears would not control our lives, our anxiety, our loneliness, all the things that can be there that it would not control us. That your word, the shed blood of Christ, the fellowship of your Holy Spirit, the church that you give us to love us. Father, we are not alone. We do not need to be ashamed because you do not remember the sins of our youth. We pray this, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.